What is up? Welcome back to What's What with Wyatt Wilkes. This is your host, Wyatt Wilkes. Now, unfortunately, we had a little issue with the video, so when you hear this audio, you will maybe hear me talking about a camera or like for the people on YouTube, had a little issue with the video, so that couldn't be um, in the... Uh, we, I couldn't make it into a video as well, so it's just going to be the audio. So if you're listening to this, obviously you're listening to it on Spotify or Apple Podcast. Either way, just wanted to explain a little bit. Welcome. All right, so we have James Pawnee on the podcast. He is a writer, director. Um, he went to USC Film School. He is a two-time uh, best-selling author, and he is a fantastic person and one of the most interesting people I know. And I'm very happy that he's going to be on here, and I am so excited for you guys to listen. I know that you guys are going to love this interview because I did. I had a great time. Obviously, I'm doing this uh, after the doing this intro after the video, but I wanted to get to the ads. Because we have some great sponsors today. So, the first ad is Phone Hero. You guys have heard me talk about Phone Hero before. Phone Hero fixes your phones. And they do it for a great price. Austin, I can't say this enough. I, I think I'm going to bore you guys to death with how, much, how great they are. Austin's the greatest guy ever. He, he's helped out Ray twice recently. As you know, he broke his phone twice. Austin fixed it twice. And it works just like it was brand new. If you want to uh, buy used uh, iPhones, um, any any phone, iPhone, iPad, um, a new computer, go to Phone Hero. Don't take it to the mall. I can't say that enough. Take it to Phone Hero. They're gonna treat you the right way, and they're gonna do it the right way. You're not. You're never gonna have issues with Phone Hero after you get your your phone back from them, or any other product that you buy from them, whether you get it fixed or not. They're always going to do it the right way, and I'm so happy to have them on as a sponsor. Our next sponsor, and I'll link their website in the description. Our next sponsor is Isabella's. Isabella's is the best pizza. Mikkel, I, I, was, I, went no, oh, I, I went over and saw him the other day, and he was telling me that you guys have been coming in and telling him that you heard about him on the podcast, and I am so happy that you guys have been going in and eating their pizza, and I want even more of you to go. It is absolutely fantastic. It's my favorite pizza in the world. You can go to their website at isabellaspn.com. They are based in Tallahassee, so if you are in Madagascar, you cannot eat their pizza, unfortunately, until you know somebody figures out a drone pizza delivery system, but once again, they're the best over there. It's Neapolitan-style pizza. And it's not just pizza, obviously. I mean, they even have ice cream over there, which is fantastic. You should give it a try. But go on their website, check out what they have, and you will thank me later. It's absolutely fantastic. And I'm so glad that they are a sponsor and I get to tell you about them. All right, on to the new sponsor. The brand new sponsor that we have for the podcast is Poppy's Candy Box. I absolutely love candy, just like I assume most of you do. Poppy's Candy Box is unique, though. They offer unique size and different variety candy boxes for you. And this is the best part. They ship. I the next the next YouTube video that I put, post, I will have an ad and I will have a, vid, a video showing you the boxes. But for right now, I'm going to have to describe it with my voice. Poppy's candy boxes offer large, medium, small and mini and those price, the large is $38, the medium is $28, the small is $18, and the mini is $8.50. I have eaten through a small and most of a large, which I, you know, hey, I, if, you, if you're eating healthy out there, good for you. But you know what? I do love me some candy. They're absolutely perfect for gifts, parties. Um, and you can personalize them, which is fantastic. So you order it, and you, you want to send it to somebody you love, a girlfriend, your mother, uh, your boyfriend, your brother, uh, what, whoever it is. You, you can put, personalize it to them. You get to pick the candy that's in the boxes, and it comes in a almost like a uh, – I, I don't have a better word to describe it, but a tackle box where there's different assortments of different candies in each individual compartment. So and and it stays fresh too. It's it, you can they're airtight, so they don't get too stale, and which it happens a lot with boxes of this nature. Um, and like I said, they can ship nationwide. Poppy's Candy Box at gmail.com is how you can order, or go to their Instagram and Facebook at Poppy's Candy Box. That is P O P P I E S 
C-A-N-D-Y-B-O-X, Poppy's Candy Box. They are the greatest, and I'm so happy to have them as a sponsor, and I can't wait to show you guys on the next YouTube video. But thank you for watching. <laughs> thank you for listening, if I meant to say, and let's get it going. Three, two, all right. Welcome back. If you're watching on video, welcome. If you're listening, also welcome. I'm here with James Ponty. Is it okay if I call you James? Please do. All right. So, Mr. Wilkes, you have an extremely long list of accomplishments and things you've done in your life. Would you agree with that? No. Okay. I don't so, agree with that at all. Okay. So, I've had a varied career with a lot of different things but no no it's yeah okay so he's lying um so i'm gonna go ahead and read some of your accomplishments and some things so people can get an idea uh, because my some of my viewers they they might not have any idea who i imagine are. all of your viewers have no idea all right so here we're gonna we're, i'm just gonna go down the list and okay. then we can get started but just to give people a real real sense of who we're working with here we have oh i don't know why that soundtrack is like that okay here we go so you went to USC Film School, graduated from USC Film School. Yes. Okay. You're yes. a two-time best-selling author. Yes. You're an Emmy-nominated television writer. Or television writer. Director, to actually. In that, director. Producer in that one, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You won the Edgar Allan Poe Award for your book Framed. For my book Famished. Famished, sorry. Um, you've been a producer on multiple TV shows, including Nickelodeon, Disney Channel, PBS, History Channel, <laughs> Spike TV, and the Golf Channel. Yes. Okay. More more writer on Disney and Nickelodeon and producer on the others. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you make a mean spaghetti sauce. I do do that. The first real accomplishment that you come across as far as I'm concerned. Okay. Um, so uh, your books have appeared on more than 15 different state award lists. Yeah. And uh, you've been a... He's the founder of a writer's group known as the Renegades of Middle Grade. Yes. Okay. So I'd say that's a pretty big thing. You're, you're teaching the youth. You're, you're inspiring things in them. We'll, we'll, we'll let that go. We'll say, oh, I'll play along. Okay. Um, you have two sons, Alex and Grayson, and you've been married to the one and only Denise Ponty. For over 31 years. All right. So she was my history teacher in my junior year of high school. So She's my history teacher every day. So that's how I got a chance to interview this legend. Um, you've been to more zoos than you've written books. Um, yes, because my son works at zoos and loves zoos, but I'm catching up. I've written a lot of books. But. Okay. And then uh, last but not least, you've played middle school soccer. Um, the high school. High, high school. school. But I was... I was Mom, you led me astray. It, it was more um, JV, so that's like middle school. It's like... Same thing. Same thing. But undefeated. We were undefeated, so we got that. Okay, so I have a couple questions written sure. down here and there, but my, my, my mom said you can't go in not prepared. Okay. So obviously I have to be prepared, but... Most, I've known Wyatt's mom for quite a long time. Quite so a long that's time. That's why she's saying this. The most important question... I've known Wyatt for quite a long time. But how most Middle of my, school? I, th yeah. I think at least early middle school, elementary school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But my, I think the most important question I can ask you would be, what is your favorite color? My favorite color is gray. Gray, which is you really? never hear. <laughs> no, I don't. Okay, what, so so I'm I'm a writer, and story is what I'm about, right? So gray has the best story of any color because it's really two colors. It's black and white, so you have two opposing colors, and gray is the solution of the problem of the differences between those colors. So people always talk about the gray area as like oh, it's such a gray area, like it's a negative. But to me, the gray area is the solution. You have a point of view, I have a point of view, and that gray area where the overlap is where we're going to find commonality. But specifically, it's kind of like a blue tinted gray. And I know that's weird, but you ask, and that's actually my favorite color. Just like my favorite ice cream flavor is based on the story behind it as well, but we don't have to go there if you don't want well, to. Well, that is my favorite answer ever. To what <laughs> okay. Is, I didn't expect that. I thought that was going to be a quick little funny thing. Yeah. No. You, the, the thing is, that's why you asked the unexpected, because sometimes people have a deeper answer than maybe you were thinking. Yeah, very much so. For ice cream, by the way, it's Rocky Road. Now, Rocky Road... It's got chocolate, which is great. It's got elements in it. Rocky Road was invented during the Depression. 
when the country was facing the rocky road and so the ice cream store um I believe it was fenton's out in o- oakland california they invented this ice cream flavor and they just could put a bunch of different things of all the things we'd have to do to overcome the obstacle of the depression it's oh, delicious that's very interesting but it also has a story so gray and rocky road all right so if i ever come over here again i'll i'll give, bring you some rocky road then you can't go wrong with oreo also that's just plain good all right yeah. well, I'm, I'm a strawberry guy myself strawberry's but, great you know a, a good strawberry a good yeah it a has good stra- to be a good strawberry best milkshakes are strawberry yeah, so, yeah. I, so, I would yeah. have to agree with that all although right. cookies and cream okay so you go to usc film school I first did. of all what what was that like like the because because they're renowned it was great is you know i grew up in a in a beach town in florida you know and i moved to south central los angeles which was quite an adjustment um the film school when i was growing up i'm an old guy in the mid 80s it was the only undergraduate screenwriting program in the country so for me that was the place to go i wanted to be i wanted to learn that um it was great a lot of my friends from school have gone on to be famous and well known i've not you know they they would you know but um you know there's a joke my wife and i tell because it's true, we met on a blind date, and when we met, the only person that both of us knew was Judd Apatow, um, and because Judd was in class with me and lived in her dorm, um, it was neat. It was to be surrounded by something you love for four years to learn inside out. And I loved movies and I loved writing, um, but it, we didn't have phones that could work as cameras. You know, it was it was an elusive, faraway thing. You needed equipment to make that, and then just to be thrown in, and 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 teachers were filmmakers, or you know, big directors would come to class every week, and you know, Jimmy Stewart came to class. I mean, just amazing things being in Los Angeles. So it it, it was an amazing four years. I've had lifelong friends from there. I met my wife there. Um, so yeah, you know that that four years of college. The imprint it puts on your life so outsizes four years. It's amazing. Um, it's, oh, there we go. <laughs> so it, it, it was great. And, you know, I, it's, it's funny. I picked screenwriting because I loved writing, but I was a really poor reader growing up. And I never thought I could write a book. So I thought, well, maybe I could write a TV show or a movie. And, and I love those things. But it's interesting that in the end, I ended up coming around to books mm-hmm. just a long time I later. Was, I was going to ask, how did you go from not like how'd you go from films to to books well you know it's writing is writing to me and i love writing and i um i like the team component of filmmaking and television production i never worked in feature films i always worked in television so i you know but we studied film in in school i like the fact that you work with between five and 150 people trying to put together this one product um but i i like the dynamic of writing you know writing screenplays is very different than writing a book as far as pace and style and there's the reliance on dialogue but along the way i became a reader still slow i'm still a slow reader to this day and i really like books and i was writing for a tv show at nickelodeon called the mystery files of shelby Wu, and um it's well before the time of anyone that would be watching this but it, it, it was um it was popular enough that they decided to do a book series based on it so there were two writers in the show and we both said hey i want to write one of the books and so after begging and pleading they let us each write one of the books and i was hooked and so was she and she went on to be one of the most famous novelists of our time is Suzanne Collins, who wrote The Hunger Games. Really? Was the other writer on the staff. One of my best friends. And Suzanne was the one who really talked me into pursuing writing books seriously. Because I still, even though I did the, the Nickelodeon books, I thought, uh, I couldn't really write a book. And Suzanne's like, I know you can do this. Did she like help you with the like the process of no, that? No, just no. belief, just which is a huge thing. Confidence. Yeah, you know. And, and, and I knew I wasn't going to, you know, the success that she's had is unparalleled. There's like five people, you know, and I knew it wasn't going to be like that. But she says, it doesn't matter. It's great. It's fun. You'd like it. And a lot of the things that become, you know, every job comes up with pitfalls. We had, There are a lot of negatives to television. Mm-hmm. And she goes, and they're all gone because you don't have sponsors or executives at a network coming in and changing things for seemingly no reason. So that led me into wanting to try writing books. And I really have loved it. But because I was a writer at Nickelodeon and Disney Channel, my natural leap 
was to write books for the same age. Mm. And that's why I end up settling what we call middle grade. A lot of people, you know, young adult is high school and above. Near adult is like college age. And middle grade is that, you know, written for people who are probably between ideal, the, the core market, the core audience is between eight and 12, eight and 13. Okay. So what what would you say is harder, making a movie or TV show or writing a book? Oh, making a TV show or movie is harder, okay. for sure. I, I, I writing thought, a script for one, but you're, you're saying if you're talking, I'm about, talking all, about like the production. The production like takes so many things and so much money. I can make a book by myself for no money, just the computer and time. Um, yeah, now, whether it gets produced, right, but you're, there's all that thinking that goes into making a doing a production, but it's thinking and an armada of 20 to 40 boats all trying to go in the same direction and trying to get everyone on board and then the finance and the technology. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know what it costs just to have this setup that I have. Yeah. And I'm like, somebody. It's ridiculous. Was, um, I recently just had a friend, um, Walker, who he, he made the, if you're watching this and check out Winter Park 10 years later, it's a documentary that was done on um, the Winter Park teams that won back to back state championships. But he was just talking about the process of making, I mean, it was a feature length film. It was like two hours, 20 minutes. I went to the premiere and it was just unbelievable. The, right. the setup and all the different things. And now, now that I'm playing with the like lighting and cameras and, and audio and all these different things. And I watched that and I was like, even something's like this. Oh, sorry. Oh. Someone at the door. Hey, you gotta pause this. Somebody's at the door. And we're back. All right. So yeah, but it was just it just was ridiculous when I kind of knew had an idea of what was going on behind the scenes. But, but what what's happened though is we talk about democracy and we think about democracy in terms of voting and po politics. We are also in a media democracy like never before, which is everyone having a voice. And by that, I mean, it, you, like when I went to college, like I said, you had to go to USC or NYU just to learn how to use the cameras. I now on my phone, I've been on, I've been on shoots where I've had three cameras, each of which are well over $100,000 each shooting stuff. And I shot stuff on my phone at the same time to get a different angle. And I've used that on broadcast television in a high definition and people can't tell that I've switched over to, a, a, you know, you can now approximate what used to be considered network or professional quality. Anyone could do it. It's also part of the problem in the sense of we, we that used to be without us even realizing it, the way we judged, okay, this is trustable or not trustable because it looks real. Mm -hmm. Well, we can all make it look real. And yes, it costs a lot and there's a lot going on, but like your friend was able to make a two hour documentary and, and show it. Well, it took him a whole team. It, it did. Yeah. But he was able to do that without having to go to Los Angeles and getting mm -hmm. millions of dollars and doing it. And so that part of the democracy is really interesting to me, you know, that you and I can have this conversation and you can reach an audience and, and you, you didn't have to get any gatekeeper to give you permission mm -hmm. to do that. So would you say that's the biggest, or maybe not the biggest difference, but one of the biggest differences between when you were in school and now? Is the accessibility to you know every every everything looks more realistic every, every you, you, yes but but more the the bigger difference of like saying studying filmmaking now versus studying then is yeah the technical proficiency is part of it where we would spend a portion of those four years just learning that but more it's your film and visual literacy is so enhanced that you can read and see and do things so much faster than before. Mm. And that gives you more leeway in the production. Interesting. You know, that they used to call it MTV editing, which is so outdated now. <laughs> but the thought that you could have montage editing with a lot of quick cuts in 1987 seemed like, oh my goodness, people are gonna, their brains are gonna melt. <laughs> yeah. And now that's, to see anything long cuts, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. It's because we're more, we, our literacy has improved so much visually that we're able to follow that story better. Mm. Yeah. yeah, wow. That, that was, again, once again, that was more in depth than I thought. Like, Sorry. Oh, no, no. I can give, I can give shallow answers if you want. Please, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, please keep doing it because like, you're blowing my mind a little no. bit too. Just like, because this realm is so new to, to new to me, yeah. you know, so it's it, just to hear someone who's been in it for how, how however long you have been, it's 
pretty interesting. What what I think is going to is happening is it used to be that you know um, we got typewriters, and we got typewriters. Every every business, every entity was expected to produce written material because now you had the equipment to do mm-hmm. it. You could have a press release. You could have letterhead. You could do whatever. Well, now this visual medium, audiovisual media used to be television, film only, those businesses. Well, now the expectation is that everyone has that. Yeah. Everyone can do that. Every business has a component that creates that because we all have access to that now, down to the fact that everyone has a website. And everyone with that website is expected to have audio and video content. And so the Not ex- only that, but good. Yeah, but good. Yeah. And, and you can't get by with just what 15 years ago you go wow look at that he had like a a 20 second hi i'm so you know now they want professional yeah exactly they want the good quality imagery and the content Mm -hmm. you know and 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 always the the greatness is the, the, the 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 leading edge is the technology okay we can do this now but the the heart what matters is well then when the content catches up wait if we can do that then I can make a documentary or we can make a documentary about these basketball teams, so mm-hmm. the content is always king, and the expectation is if you're going on a website you know if you're watching commercials during the Olympics right now it's the Olympics I don't know when people see this. <laughs> You expect the com- the commercials used to be, hey, I'm Joe, come on down and buy a car. Mm-hmm. Now you want emotion and humor and yeah, it can't be stale, right? You know, so so that's thing. good that the content improves mm-hmm. is is I think a real progress. Well, and I think they can't be stale anymore because in nineteen. Uh, I might be wrong. It might, 1985, I believe, it was on average the average American uh, citizen. Okay, saw around 500 ads a day. Yeah. And then the average American citizen adult today sees over 7,500. I'm, I'm not surprised. I mean, it's, so it's, I don't know those numbers specifically, so I, I'm not I vouching it, for them, I but I trust a, them. I learned it in a class. Um, but at FSU. FSU. You okay. know, hey, so that's, 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 an, that's no a USC fully accredited university. No, but you know, the, the great part about this though, and I don't, I don't want to over, I don't want to step past this because this is the best part of all of this is as this becomes more democratic, just as voting, the ideal of voting was to reach populations who had no voice before. This is the case too. So now communities that didn't have a voice in mainstream media and other things, they can make their own. And, 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 and you know, that's how, you know, music is always kind of a leading edge in this, you know, that's how rap came to be. You know, it's like, people aren't playing our records, we'll just make our own records. Mm-hmm. And then it's, and then it becomes the leading mm-hmm. part, you know, and, and that is great. It's giving voice to all different, you know, male, female, um, LGBT, black, white, Asian, you know, it, 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 it splits up and everyone has access. It doesn't just have to be what it used to be. It's like, well, my brother works for a television studio so he can get us access in the middle of the night to a car- or something like that. Mm-hmm. Where, where, where you, that is always for the better. When Instead, more, now you can just. <laughs> you, you can, well, even look at it in its most basic form, the, the current revolutions of police reform come from the ability of people to videotape things. Mm-hmm. So it's not just, no, it's this a, is what I said, you don't have to and wait. they d- deny it. Now it's like, I have proof that used to be only if they sent a, to see a news camera yeah. in here to cover it, yeah. I have actual proof. And even the cameras that are being worn, the body cameras on police, it's all of a sudden that technology has now changed the way we see everything. Mm-hmm. So that's good. Yeah, it's... It, a lot of times I'm, I'm kind of in between as far as like the phones. I'm not a big technology person. Like I never have right. been. And one thing that I don't like about it, especially when the, with the cameras getting so good and things like that, is like when something incredible is happening and people take oh. out their phone. Yeah. See that now I'm not a big fan of that. Like, they're not experiencing it. I, they're not experiencing like I would much rather experience it and have it in my memory than and like have a great memory of that thing than take out my phone, take a video of it. I'm with you 100%. And then never watch that video again. So I, I made a decision when I was 20 years old on we went on a trip to Europe 
and it was really going to be life-changing for me just you know three weeks backpacking with friends seeing and to everyone's chagrin in my family i decided not to take a camera because if i take a camera i'm constantly going to be worried and this was back when you had to buy film you had to carry yeah. it separate but it's like I'm only going to be worried about getting the picture to prove that I did it mm -hmm. and to show that I did it. And I'm going to worry about losing the camera and the, and, and the rain. And all that. Like, I just want to go and, and do it and experience it. And all life. my friends bought their cameras and they said, oh, don't worry. We'll see. We'll give you the pictures. Not one of them ever gave me a single picture. <laughs> it must have been pretty good. So I have no memory. I have no visual proof of that trip. But it was, you know, a really crucial two weeks in my development as a person. So it was great. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you got. So I, I totally agree with with you on that on that front, you know. But you know, looking back specifically to the civil rights movement, so the March on Selma, the key on the March on Selma, the key of what turned the nation's tide with regard to civil rights and what um, Dr. King was doing and what John Lewis was doing was when news cameras finally came and people saw really how bad it was. Well, now they don't have to wait for that. And that's why I, what I, that's why I use the demo democracy of it. That's why it's giving a voice to everyone. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it was some, was it a teenage, teenager shot, like a 19 year old shot the George Floyd video. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like that's, that's powerful that a 19 year old was able to impact the public dis the, the national discussion discussion yeah. yeah yeah when to bring it back to his dog my dog here. is down here I'm she, trying to, she just brought a sheep she, this is her she thinks i'm a sheep uh, 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 you know just following the herd so okay go get that sheep lucy all right um, with to bring it back to um you like your writing when Obviously, you've probably been asked this a million times. So on this one, you can give a shallow answer if you wish. But um, I never wish. If what is, what's the start? Like, let's say you have zero plans for something. Okay. Like a book let's, for a novel, and you like, what is the first step in starting that novel? Is it an idea, or well, are you saying I want to write a book? Now I have to come up with an idea. It's 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 not as definable as that for me. And I think probably for a lot of people. First of all, there is no starting point. It is um, the creative part of your brain is always working and always throwing out things, even when you don't want it to. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, hey, I wonder what it would taste like to mix peanut butter and chocolate. Oh, that's turned out to be brilliant, right? Yeah. But, you know, it's always throwing out stuff. And, and when you sit down to, and, and, and even when you think of an idea, you don't normally think of it when you finish another one. So, like, I am currently in a position where I just finished a book that is now in copy edit, so there's not really much left for me to do. Mm -hmm. I am just about to start writing the next book in that series. And in between, I'm trying to work on a little idea that will become maybe a book after the next book. So um, for the last six months, those other two things have been percolating in there. God, what book am I gonna write next? So without even intentionally thinking about it, it does. And then when you sit down, you start thinking about, well, what are some of the, but yeah, when, when you be, commence it, you, you look through your backlog of ideas. It's like, what are some of the ideas that I had or didn't have or whatever? You know, John Hughes was a popular filmmaker when I was growing up with Breakfast Club and 16 Candles and all this stuff. He used to keep a card catalog of titles that he liked. Like he, he um, some kind of wonderful, he'd write that down and he just put all these in. And then when he started, he'd just start flipping through the titles and see what it would trigger. So everyone's looking for a different trigger. My trigger is going for walks, go, you know, mm -hmm. when it keeps me away from being distracted by things like, oh, you can answer the phone, you can do the dishes, you can do whatever. No, go for a walk, get out of the house, think for an hour. And sometimes the idea is a character, sometimes it's a plot. Um, so you do you you get mo like most of the time though you get like one like idea like boom got it whether I'm like whether that it doesn't have to be at the beginning but like you could have yeah a, like you could have an idea for a great ending and then work backwards so you you have you know books are about magic right mm -hmm. you want that the stories are about magic ooh that moment when you're reading or watching or hearing and you kind of lean forward like I didn't that that's good. You're going to find that, and then you want to build from that, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's a little bit different than what I do. I write series books. So I had three books in the Dead City series. I had three books in the Frame series. There might be more. I'm right now working on the fourth book in the City Spice series. I think there's going to be at least six or seven of those. And that's a little different. Once you've come up with the first one, mm 
well, I already know the next book, even though I don't know anything in it, is going to be this group of characters and this genre of writing. Mm. So that that is, I'm looking for new plot. So that's a different start. When I'm coming up with a, when I'm coming up with a series to begin with, then it's um, no, it's it's. I, I I like to think of it as a room, right? And like this room we're in right now, there is two doors, three windows. And a closet, which I guess creepy guy could be hiding in there. So that's there are six ways into this room. So the story is the room. All you got to do is find one of those entry points. Maybe it's a character, maybe it's a plot idea, maybe it's a setting, and you get into the room, turn on your flashlight, and start looking around, and you start seeing, oh, I like this room because it has that element already. What else comes with it? And so then for me, it is all about getting into the room. That's a. You, do you teach? I do not teach. You I do should. not teach. Well, I, the thing about teaching is, I would love to teach writing. I would hate grading, and I would. I would hate. I would hate become a college professor. Yeah, I, I would hate. I would hate <laughs> talking to people about writing, and then you want to be encouraging when people write, and and, and it's just it's a hard combination. So um, you know what. That's a great. Oh, do you have to take that? No. Oh, okay. All right. But um, yeah, I, I can see how. You know, you know, and, and so, so it's almost like any any teachers out there. If you want me to come talk to your class one day, no problem. You but, just talk to one of my classes. <laughs> if you're a teacher, get it. But um, but as far yeah, so but, mm -hmm. but yeah, once you get into and then and then it's the fun. It's like all right, so now I've got this story with you know, City Spies is the first book I wrote that made the New York Times bestseller list. So we'll talk about City Spies. All right, all right. I went on a vacation with my wife to visit our son. He was doing his junior year of college in England. So we went to England to visit him. Um, we spent a week there in in um, London and Paris. Mm -hmm. And it was great. It was a great family vacation, but writers are always writing, right? Of course. And I had the day of the flight, I flew on a Friday. It was the last day of spring. It was the last day before spring break. My wife's a high school teacher. So we were flying that night, flying and just landing in, you know, fly over the ocean in the middle of the night, wake up and you're in Europe. Friday afternoon, I turned in Vanish, the book that won the Edgar Award. So I had turned in a book, so it was time for me to start writing again, right? You don't take time off, even, even if you don't physically use a computer. You're, and so the next day, literally less than 24 hours after I finished book two in that series, I started thinking about book three. Well, here I am in Europe. You know, oh, man, this is really great. We're having fun. This is a door, a window into the room of the story. Maybe the character should come to Europe for the next book. And so I started thinking, what would be fun about that? And then it's like, well, you get really, you know, okay, there it's a detective series is that one, mystery series. And so it's like, there's Sherlock Holmes is London. So maybe we come up with something like the Sherlock Society has an annual convention and people come to London. But then at the, at the event, someone dies. And so now you have 100 people who think they're expert detectives all trying to figure out who killed, you know, so that's, and, I walk, and then we're in Paris and we're in Paris and my wife is just like passing out on every street. It's gorgeous, right? You know, she's <laughs> yeah. like, she's like, oh my God, it looks just like Paris. I'm like, well, it is Paris. And she goes, no, it looks like you imagined Paris being, you know, you, you go to a lot of places and they're like, oh, I've seen that in a movie, but it only feels that way if you look at it from this angle mm -hmm. in the morning with the sun's coming over the building. But Paris, every direction <laughs> took your breath away, right? So now I'm like, okay, well maybe my characters will go to London and Paris. And then I thought about the Brady Bunch. I don't know if you guys know the Brady Bunch, old TV show. Oh, yeah. The Brady Bunch would have these episodes where the characters would go to the Grand Canyon and they go to Hawaii and they really were kind of jumped the shark before we knew what jump the shark was. Mm -hmm. and I thought my third book, I'm not explain, explain that. jump the shark is when a TV show does something so ludicrous that you kind of lose the core audience. It goes back to an episode of happy days when in happy days they did a special three-parter where the people went to Los Angeles and Hollywood and Fonzie ended up literally jumping a shark on water skis. Okay, so this is the same yeah. thing. I'm like, I'm going to jump the shark if in the third book of the series, I have them already traipsing around another country. So that's basically where you're losing your your original. You've gone against what you are. Okay, gotcha. Right? You so, know. So the people that have been with you from the start kind of, you, you lose them. You, well, because you have a contract. Your contract with the reader is, these are the types of stories I'm going to tell you. Mm-hmm. So would that be consider like would it consider like when a TV show or movie gets a new gets a new actor for the same character would that be in the same kind yeah, of yeah that that but 
sometimes that can even work. I mean, so shows can grow and develop and be different, but you know when you've done it when it's just ridiculous because mm-hmm. you're you're now forcing the plot instead of following the plot. So here I am. I come back from this trip, and I'm like, I don't want to take these characters there. And so we went to the Altamont Mall here um, in in or- near Orlando, and my wife was going to Macy's. And I don't want to go and hold her purse outside the changing room. So we entered through a Barnes Noble and I told her, hey, let me stand here. And I'm going to come with a new book series while you're shopping. Smart man. And she thought I was joking. I was kind of joking. But when she, I, I just stood there and I looked at the kids section at Barnes and Noble and I asked, what's missing? And I looked at all the covers and there were a lot of covers with people on them. Um, who was Albert Einstein? You know, I survived. You know, Paul Revere's writer. But all all these kids' books with people. It makes sense because people, kids identify with people on covers. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know what? I don't see is I don't see landmarks. And we just saw these two great landmarks: Big Ben, um, Eiffel Tower. So I thought, okay, start with the landmark. That's going to be the cover. I go, why are there kids in? Why are there kids? in Europe. I know I wanted mysteries. I go, no, but I want kids going to see, I want every cover of every book to be a famous landmark. So why are kids gonna travel around? So that was my way in. That was my window into the room. I want kids traveling around the world. Well, spies would travel around the world. Okay, why are kids spies? It's always the question you have to ask in these books. You have to suspend disbelief a little bit, but you have to jump into it. And then it's like, okay, what if this guy is going around the world looking for his kids, this guy who's a spy? And he's going around the world looking for his kids who have been kidnapped or missing or whatever. And along the way, he finds other kids who are in need and he can't turn his back on them. So he adopts them basically. Mm -hmm. So he has this family of kids from all over the world and he's a spy. So all he knows how to do is to teach them how to be spies. And then what could kids who were spies do that adult spies couldn't? Because you have to at least rationalize, well, why are they getting to do this? And it's like, well, there's sometimes when you have to spy on things where they're all kids. Mm -hmm. And so... See, that, that right there where you just got, like, while you were talking, I was thinking, you know, I'm like, I'm putting it together. And, like, when you said, well, what do, what do they spy on when they're kids? To me, like, my brain just shut off. Like, I, like, yeah. I literally, like. Yeah, well, but you, that's because you have to, you have to exercise muscles to play basketball. Yeah, yes. I was going to. You have to exercise mental muscles. I was going to ask. I, I talk to people all the time of writing, like, Michael Jordan. How many shots did Michael Jordan take not in games? to make the shot in games. People only want to work on finished product books. It's like, you got to write sometimes stuff that's not going to happen. You've got to work those muscles and you've got to train the mental muscles to be ready for the real time. Mm. And so then I came up with the idea that these kids, what they would do is they would have to lose their past. They'd have to race their past to become spies. But to have a little taste of their past, their code names would be the cities they were from. And uh, that's why so we call them the city spies. A little, a little bit of uh, reservoir dogs. Well, there like, you go. The colors. Yeah. And then yeah. my wife came back and she goes, did you come up with the series? And like I said, you know, oddly enough, I, I think I did. And I even had the cover of the first book picked out and the cover of the second book picked out. <laughs> that's great. And it worked out to be those are the covers, which never happens. But first book was Eiffel Tower. Second book was Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. One, one thing that really shocked me because I, which book was it that I was reading while you were writing it? Was that the uh, Dead City? Yeah, you've read a couple. A you couple. also gave me tips on a book that I still haven't finished. Okay, so all these years later. Okay, so when I was what was it, 2013? Yeah. So I was in like eighth grade, something like that. Yeah. So around eighth grade, um, when he was right, he the one book that I remember like majorly, I think was Dead City with the or is that what it is? Dead City is the one that has zombies. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. So his book Dead City, which is a great book, I, I absolutely love it, but. Um, what shocked me even back then was how much work goes into such minor details. Like it, it, it shocked me. Well, yeah. Like not only how much work, but how much, how much tweaking and how like every little thing. Like there are a few things that I can think of to compare it to how like not and not only just one single part of it, but then how that's one single part. If you change it, how that then affects. The book later down the line like that's what i never thought about it, it's a complex ecosystem of this impacts this later and the, you know but again it's built over time it's built oh you know those muscles i don't mean to keep coming back to basketball and the, but that's to oh, me please do. it's the same kind of thing to me it's like the the problem with fans having opinions on basketball or any high level sport is 
they're comparing something they did in the backyard as a singular activity. I'm going to shoot a free throw or I'm going to shoot a layup. And they don't see the speed and the action of all these other people thinking through everything from move that we just don't know. So we have to appreciate just, oh, man, that looks amazing without trying to break it down. But it's ridiculous if we say, well, all they had to do was that because mm-hmm. you don't that's never all you have to do in this. You know, the thing with writing is we all have written sentences. Mm-hmm. Writing a book is a lot more to it. But if we do it well, it seems effortless. And it reads effortless. And if you do a play well in sports, or if you paint a painting well, or if you do these things, it is that ultimate effortless appearance that makes something, that rises it to the highest level, but it is also the thing that makes it seem accessible to people, which is great. I mean, I want books to be accessible. Good good, yeah. good writing should read like Usain Bolt runs. Exactly. But I just, know there's a ton that goes into him running. Smooth. It's not just yeah, he's course. fast. But people yeah. think he's just fast. Yeah, that's no. the entry ticket. He he. I was I was watching some video about him that was like just talking about how he is basically the perfect runner. Yeah, like just with like high weight, like how his legs kick, you know, how his muscle structure. Like he, you can't get better. All right, so it, I think her name is McLaughlin. I could be wrong on that. She just um, set the world record, won mm-hmm. a gold medal last night in the four hundred hurdles, mm-hmm. four hundred meter hurdles. S- Sydney Sydney McLaughlin. Yeah, I and, think the, and the way that she did that. What was she spent a year doing miserably by hurdling with the wrong leg? Because what she wanted to be able to do, lead leg, what she wanted him to be able to do is to be able to hurdle efficiently with either, mm-hmm. which most have to do a little stutter step or do something to make sure they're always going to the right. And that either made her faster is what cut the time, which then eventually cut the time off that then lets her do what no one has ever done before. So there are lots of things like that, that effortlessness look to go in and it's like, you know, um, you know, in, in, in my books, I've got to, I, I know that actually, even though they're four kids, a number of adults read them. I know teachers read them and you got to kind of appeal to everyone. You've got to make plots complicated, but you also have to make them Easy to be followed. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I I was a huge Percy Jackson Olympians mm-hmm. fan, or, uh, Percy Jackson fan, and when I was a kid, and the other day, like maybe not the other day, but like three months ago, probably, I actually got um, like the last Olympian that book, the, uh-huh. the book, and read it. And I read it in an hour and a half. Yeah, and, I, and it was just, it was very uh, dull to me, but I right. remember it as being this incredibly in detail and in depth right. and yeah. so many moving pieces. And now I realize there was maybe like three or four. <laughs> you know, well, like, yeah, you know, but I, I hope for that. I, I would hope that it, an adult that reads mine doesn't feel that way. They so, read it fast. So how do you incorporate, but like, how do you write for different age groups? You, how is that even pot? Like how, how do you appeal to an adult and also a 12 year old? I don't know an intentional thing to answer that. I think that, um, I write complicated stories. I never dumb it down. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. Um, with with kids, you have to be fair. You can't use words or references they wouldn't know. But the complexity of the plot can still be pretty in depth, and um, I think that's really the key. You know, but treat your reader with respect. Mm-hmm. But also, I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm not trying to show off to the adult that reads it. I, if, if you, my allegiances are first to the story, then to the reader, then to me. Mm-hmm. I have to be true to the story. I have to care about the reader. And then I come last. And if you lose sight of that. Ego. The others fall apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did, are you ever worried that you'll run out of ideas? Not really. Not really. Um, I'm worried they won't be good. I mean, I, I'm worried. I'm worried people will find my writing not good, or I'll be limited about a certain thing. But the 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 finding of ideas, I've done it enough to feel like that's not a, a concern. Maybe it should be, you know. But there are a million. There are unlimited stories out there that excite me to see. So you just have to keep looking.
Now I will say this about because I didn't talk about it when we were talking about the or, or, origination of story ideas. Mm -hmm. Most all of that comes from questions. Once you get into the the room, it's questions. So you talked about Dead City. It's like I'm like okay, I want these people. What would they do? Or who would do it? Or who would? Do, and each question should be answered with a more complicated question. And eventually, you ask a question that's really complicated but interesting. And then, then it's like, okay, the answer to that question is the book. Mm -hmm. You know, so oh, it, you, yeah. you ask yourself. So that's why I guess I, I'm not worried about losing ideas is I've always got questions. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how much people are willing to share their expertise. So... Um, well, if you're passionate about something, if, if you're an expert in something, you almost have to be passionate in it. Right. And, so, and, and you want people to get it right. Yeah. And if you're if you're passionate about something, you're much more willing to talk about it than, you know, I, like if you talk to me about uh, like how to do um, like gardening or something, like I, I would just be like, huh. All right. you know, but like if you talk to me about um, a 1968 uh, Challenger, I'd be like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Up. You know, I'm yeah, exactly. You know, if you're passionate about that and I'm passionate about it, I'm willing to listen as well. But for research, I do tons of research for my books. Um, and I, I, I now realize I, I reach out to people. So like I wrote a book that took place in the Library of Congress. So I reached out to them and they showed me all around behind the scenes. You know, um, uh, uh, a reader who was a fan, was a librarian who happened to be married to someone who was high up at the CIA. And her husband helped me plan the spy mission in the book. You just got me on a watch list. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I didn't use names. Uh, yeah, yeah. They yeah. they'd never be able to tell. Yeah, yeah. No. Uh, so okay, so he he helped you out with a uh, people help you out. It's amazing, yeah. you know, because because you say the same thing. It's like I don't want to I, I I don't want to insult your time. So yeah. I'm gonna be I'm not gonna be quick. I'm gonna talk to you about things, but I also I want to respect the time that you put into a career to represent it well mm -hmm. to not just do you know because you, you, you always hear about cops seeing cop shows and thinking that's not at all what it's like mm -hmm. so it's like tell me first of all the first thing i asked him was tell me the things we always get wrong that drive you crazy so i can get rid of those mm -hmm. and then the next thing i said okay here's a situation that i have in the plot i want it to be realistically handled what would you say and he says well there's three things you got to do and, and i'm like and that's it and it's great fun because also it's great to talk to people who really know something you know it's just like oh wow that's i never thought of that or you know yeah, i haven't been this quiet in forever i'm just i'm in here soaking up information <laughs> you you've covered about fourteen thousand topics so i i, I couldn't have guessed we we're gonna get covered but i i have a a question that i i thought of and i thought that was really important for you especially which is what what's the most important question to ask an author that never gets asked wow i don't know because you know people ask a lot i i get asked questions a lot i do school visits a lot i do kids write me emails teachers write me emails it is It doesn't have to be the most. I important. think. I think. I think the question that can yield the best interaction is why you love it, because no one, anyone that loves it, shouldn't be doing it. Mm -hmm. And why do you love it gets at the root of, well, then who are you? It's a great answer. It, no, it really is. <laughs> you know, you know. So, so that's that's what you know. If you're interviewing, that's what you're trying to figure out. Who are you? Either how to do something or who is somebody. And finding that, you know, so I, I have this belief that the way fiction works is there is a protagonist and the protagonist has an engine of conflict and that it is the resolution of that engine of conflict that's the story. Mm. So it's the reason sequels often don't work is because, well, we've already resolved their engine. So now you're having to make up something and go back and redo the first, you know, sometimes sequels work. Godfather 2 worked, but you kind of changed Michael's engine and those things. Mm. Um, and so when I would do, I used to do a, produce a talk show on Golf Channel and we would talk to presidents and actors, you know, everyone from Bill Clinton and Matthew McConaughey to, you know, um, different, different athletes, Hall of Famers. Uh, 
what you're trying to find with all of them is what's their core essence of who they are? What's that conflict that they're driving? Are they trying to prove something to themselves? Are they trying to celebrate something? Are they trying to, you know, whatever it is. And if you can get into that moment, then that's, you get that little glimpse of, okay, that's, that's good. All right. I think that might've been the best answer of the day. Okay. Uh, my last question is if you had to look into the camera or if you're listening, he's going to be looking into the camera, but if you look in the camera and give young people or anyone, anyone that ever has to write anything, if you had to give them one, anything creative, one piece of advice that you had to give them that you thought you thought would help them out or intrigue them or whatever it may be one piece of advice that would help them be a better writer okay i'm going to give more than one okay they are interrelated go ahead that piece of advice is to forget most of the things you think you know about writing or even that maybe you've learned about writing because in the end writing should be about your voice how you speak what you think is important what matters to you so go back okay Okay, so I think I think I actually turned the camera off. <laughs> that's all right. So I um, I think the key to good writing is to think about what matters to you, what is important to you. Your voice applied to your story is the unique thing that you bring. No one else can you do that. No one else can tell that story. So write about things that matter to you. But I I, I guess the singular tip that I lead with is write in your voice. I do that in part by I read out loud. I read out loud everything that I write so I can hear it. Um, and that helps me find the voice that is unique to me and that's true to the story. So write in your voice. Don't try to use long words. Don't try to use adverbs that you would never use. Just be honest. And that, that kind of overly flowery writing is of the past. Um, you see books right now that really excite me, excite people. They're honest and they're true and they're, you know, like The Hate You Give or like, um, I don't know, that just came up. I, I know Angie a little bit who wrote that. And that book wouldn't have written been written 20 years ago. But if you've ever talked to Angie, that's the way she talks. That's the way she's, and, and her voice and perspective is imprinted on that book. And that makes the book authentic. And authenticness is a key component in creativity. Be authentic to your true self and you'll do fine. You'll do great. All right. That was fantastic. Thank you for coming My on. My pleasure. That's about going to wrap it up. Um, thank you for watching. And if you're listening, thank you for listening. Uh, thank you so a, much. This was episode 13, I believe. Of What's Lucky 13. Yep. Of course, I wore 13 in baseball when I was a kid. Met my wife on Friday the 13th. Look at that. Had a baby on Friday the 13th. We got a bunch of lucky 13s. We got a lucky 13s out right, there. But uh, hey, again, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a good one, everybody. Take care.